We'll hear argument first this morning in number 91571, Robert J. Taylor, trustee versus Freeland and Kranz. Mr. Dyke. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the, the question in this Chapter 7 bankruptcy case is whether uh, Section 522L of the Code, uh, which uh, provides for the raising of challenges to exemptions uh, in uh, combination with Bankruptcy Rule 4003, which generally requires that that objection be made within 30 days after the meeting of creditors, is an absolute uh, bar as the Third Circuit held in this case, uh, to a challenge uh, to the exemption raised at a later time. Uh, there's a uh, conflict in the circuits on this issue. Uh, there are three different positions uh, that the lower federal courts have taken, one represented by the Third Circuit in this case, which held that the 30-day uh, period is an absolute bar, a second line of cases uh, that uh, the uh, a court at a later time can re-examine the exemption de novo, and a third line of cases holding that after the 30-day period, the exemption may be challenged if it lacks a good-faith statutory basis. We are urging in this case that the court adopt this uh, third position, which is represented by decisions of the Fifth, Sixth, and Eighth Circuits. Uh, in a bankruptcy case, the first uh, act uh, is the filing of the petition by the debtor. And at the same time that the petition is filed, the debtor uh, will also uh, file a schedule of assets and a list of claimed exemptions. And in this case, when the petition was filed on October 24, 1984, the debtor uh, made a claim of exemption for a lawsuit uh, which she had pending against TWA. And uh, she characterized it in the schedules as a claim for lost wages with the value unknown. Uh, at that time, the case had uh, uh, wound its way through the state system. Uh, she had uh, been successful in convincing the Commonwealth Court to uh, affirm a judgment in her favor, and the case had been briefed and argued before the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. Within the time allowed in the code, the trustee uh, appointed by the court, uh, uh, the petitioner in this case, uh, held a meeting of creditors, as he was required to do, and examined the debtor uh, about her assets, and in particular about this claim, and noted uh, at the time that this was a possible asset case, meaning that there were possible assets here to satisfy the claims of creditors, that asset being the claim against TWA. And shortly after the meeting of creditors, he wrote to counsel for the debtor and advised them that he considered this claim to be an asset of the estate, i.e., that he considered it to be non-exempt. Uh, the claim uh, uh, continued and ultimately was resolved by settlement in favor of the debtor, and she collected approximately $110,000. And the question now is, the case having remained open for this time for the express purpose of pursuing this claim, whether the trustee in bankruptcy can now uh, go after these proceeds, uh, which were allowed to him in the amount of $23,000 here by the bankruptcy court, can go after these proceeds to satisfy the claims of creditors. Now, the contention is, uh, uh, by the respondents and the holding of the Third Circuit, is that uh, uh, that is not permissible because uh, uh, Section 522L of the Bankruptcy Code says that uh, if there's no objection filed within uh, 30 days after the creditor's meeting, that the property claimed as exempt is uh, exempt. Uh, that is in the code in 522L of the code. Uh, the time period, uh, 30-day time period, is not specified in the code, but in... That's what I wanted to know, yeah. Yes, that's, that's in Bankruptcy Rule 4003. It specifies the 30-day period. Uh, Mr. Dyke, do you claim that all of the recovery is open uh, for the trustee to seek recovery? I thought you thought only a portion of it was recoverable. We have only pursued a portion of it, and the bankruptcy court only allowed a portion of it to be reached, the $23,000. Mm -hmm. But I think that at the time that the bankruptcy petition was filed, that uh, uh, there was a strong argument that all of that could be reached. Uh, even the part covered by attorney's fees, because there was no equitable lien with respect to the claim itself, but only 
an equitable lien under state law that would have arisen after the proceeds were received. But I guess as the case comes to us, we don't have to get into that. We deal only with a portion of it. The, the uh, uh, judgment of this Court would only determine a portion of it, and we're only claiming uh, the right to the $23,000. The claims of the creditors in this case were only $11,000, so the $23,000 will be sufficient to cover that and the administrative expenses. And did, did you argue the application of the new sentence in Section 105 in the Court below? No, that was not argued in the Court below. Uh, it has, been, has come up in some other cases, but it was not argued in the Court below here. So it's being urged for the first time here? That's correct, Justice O'Connor, and, and we believe that's appropriate because what the second, section, second sentence of Section 105A says is that no provision of the code shall be construed to prevent uh, a challenge based on an abusive process. And the question of whether 522L was a bar to the trustee's claim here was something that was heatedly contested in the lower court. And we're merely saying in this court that Section 105A instructs as to how to interpret Section 522L. And, and if it were to apply, how do you think abusive process should be defined? Well, uh, I think it certainly doesn't mean abusive process in the common law sense. But if you look at Prosser or the restatement of torts, abusive process in the common law sense would, would be, uh, for example, uh, using a writ of sequestration to get property or the improper issuance of, of criminal process or the, the uh, uh, use of process to commence an improper civil action. The claiming of an exemption uh, which the statute doesn't allow is an abusive process? I think it is an abusive process not in the common law sense, but in the sense that this Court has used the term ab abusive process, for example, in the Cooter and Gell case. Uh, uh, what, what is involved here uh, in Section 105A is not the conferring of a right of action on the trustee or the party of, or an interest. It's not conferring a common law right of action. It's simply saying that the time limits of the code will not be enforced if there's an abusive process. I think there's some interesting comparisons that can be made between these provisions of the bankruptcy rules that govern here and the federal rules of civil procedure. Uh, and in some uh, respects, that's a, a rather exact parallel. Uh, under the federal rules of civil procedure, if a complaint is filed and allegations in the complaint are not controverted under Rule 8D of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, the allegations of the complaint are to be taken as true. And I think one could look at uh, 522L as essentially saying the same thing, that if a claim is made for an exemption and there's no timely objection to that, that the exemption will be taken as established. But just as under the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, that that is not the end of the matter. Uh, uh, so, too, we suggest that under the bankruptcy code, that's not the end of the matter either. Uh, uh, in other words, that uh, merely because you file a late answer doesn't mean that the court does not have the power to come in and, and uh, give relief from a default later on in the well, course you, of the uh, proceedings. What is the process that is abused here? The, the, the filing by the debtor claiming the exemption? Well, uh, Chief Justice, we're not suggesting that uh, uh, the term abusive process was used here in the common law sense. We suggest that it was meant... Well, no, but it, it surely... Uh, I mean, when you say abusive process, there's a verb and a preposition and a noun, and the, the noun is process. And, and wh wh what is the process? The, the claim is that, uh, uh, that the abusive process was the act of filing the list of exemptions and making a claim of exemption that did not have a good-faith statutory basis. So the listing of exemptions is, is a form of process, in your view? With, with, not at the common law, but within the, the scope of, of Section 105A. There's no, it, 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 we suggest that if you look at Section 105A, there's no question but that in dispensing with these time limits where there's an abusive process, that Congress was concerned with the, the situation in, in which uh, improper claims or claims without reasonable but basis. It, it, the first sentence, Mr. Dyke, begins, the court may issue any order, process, or judgment. And th that suggests that they're talking about process in the sense of something uh, of a writ or something that the court issues. Well, I think that uh, the, the language of the second sentence 
which refers to no provision of this title providing for the raising of an issue by a party in interest, shall be construed to preclude the, the court from sua sponte taking any action or making any de- determination necessary or appropriate to prevent an abusive process. The language of that, uh, of that sentence suggests to us that what they were talking about was a, a concern with the time limits in the code, and, and uh, the language fits rather exactly with Section 522L, and what they are suggesting is that if the time limit would result in an abusive process in the sense of an, uh, a bad faith or a claim or something of that sort, that the court would have power to excuse. Uh, it, there, we, we don't think that Section 105A really made any change with respect to the inherent powers of the bankruptcy courts in this area. And, in fact, uh, there, there is uh, uh, authority that uh, uh, even before uh, uh, this provision in the code, even under the old Bankruptcy Act, that the bankruptcy courts did have equitable powers in this area to do the sort of thing that we are urging should be done in this case. And Under your submission, Mr. Dyke, um, I, I take it it becomes relevant whether there's a colorable basis for the claim or a reasonable basis for the claim. That is, can, my concern is, is that that propels us into something of a collateral inquiry, and in this case illustrates the point. The issue isn't really presented in this case, but it illustrates the point. Isn't, isn't front pay exempt? Front, front pay, uh, to, the, to the extent that's necessary for the support of the debtor, would be exempt. Back pay is not exempt. So it seems to me that it, uh, in this case, if she thought there was a possibility of front pay, that that was the basis for claiming the exemption. If that were the case, that would be true. But I think that uh, the, the record uh, pretty clearly establishes, first of all, that the claim at the, at the time of the bankruptcy filing was worth $110,000, and the later calculations made at the time of the settlement show that only uh, approximately, uh, even at, uh, as of that time, only about 30 percent of that claim was, was for front pay as opposed to back pay. But then that, to that extent, at least it would be exempt, would it not? It would be ex- exempt to the extent that it was a claim for, for front pay, but after all, at the time of the filing of the bankruptcy petition, the uh, award of the Pittsburgh Human Relations Commission that was being defended had a, uh, uh, a provision in it that, that she would recover uh, from the time that she was discriminated against up until the time uh, that uh, uh, her class of supervisor was no longer employed uh, by TWA in Pittsburgh, and that was a date before the filing of the bankruptcy petition. So if you just looked at the Human Relations Commission decision, there wouldn't have been any award of front pay, but merely an award of back pay for the period before uh, the filing of the, uh, of the bankruptcy petition. But at a minimum, does not this illustrate the, the complexity and the difficulty of enforcing the rule that you propose? Well, I think that there can be situations in which it is complex, but it is not such an unusual thing. After all, under Rule 11, and uh, there is an uh, equivalent of Rule 11 in the bankruptcy rules, which is Section 9011, that the courts routinely make this kind of determination and make a determination as to whether claims have a reasonable basis. That is essentially the standard that we are urging here that ought to be applied uh, under, under Section 522 and Section 105A. Do you have any idea, Mr. Dyke, what percentage of uh, people filing for bankruptcy are represented by attorneys when they file, as opposed to, say, people who start uh, civil lawsuits in the federal courts? Uh, I don't know the answer to that, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, but uh, one of the problems here is that the bankruptcy courts are inundated with these filings. The last year there were 880,000 bankruptcy filings, uh, 291 bankruptcy judges to deal with all of those filings, and a real need on the part of the bankruptcy courts to rely on the good faith of uh, debtors in claiming exemptions. Otherwise, the, 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 situa- the, the whole system would collapse. How many, uh, what, what percentage of all the filings uh, involve the, uh, a trustee? Well, uh, all of the Chapter 7 uh, filings uh, would involve a trustee in the vast... Which is this one? Which is this one. Well, and the uh, so it isn't the, it isn't the uh, bankruptcy judges uh, that are any more in than... Uh, they, are in a, they are more inundated than the trustees. The trustees uh, have been pretty inundated, too, even... Uh, well, even uh, bef- 
the trustee is the person who failed to object here, or any creditors failed to object. Well, the just Isn't that right? That is correct. The, the creditors uh, would not have objected. You're dealing with a situation in which there was $11,000 in claims. No creditor has a sufficient monetary incentive to raise an objection or to investigate the case. They rely on the trustee. You seem to have it now. Well, creditors seem to have an interest now. No, it's, well, I think it's not the creditors. It's the bankruptcy trustee. Well, who's the, the trustee certainly, certainly didn't do what he should have done. He did not do what he should have done in the technical sense, uh, but what he did was immediately after the meeting of creditors, he wrote a letter to the uh, debtor's counsel handling this TWA case for her and advised them specifically of his position. This was not a case in which the trustee lay back and, uh, and did not inform people of his position. And the case was specifically kept open for this purpose. There was uh, not technical compliance with the bankruptcy rules in the sense that there was an objection filed with the court, but everybody knew what the trustee's position was at the time, and the bankruptcy court was made aware of it too. But these kinds of of slip-ups are going to occur when you have this many bankruptcy proceedings. At at the time uh, that this case uh, was going on, the trustee here had approximately uh, two or three hundred of these cases a year, which I think is typical of bankruptcy trustees. Where, where did you file it? Where, where did the trustee file a suit? He filed it within the, uh, the context of the bankruptcy proceeding. It's a so-called adversary proceeding mm-hmm. within the context of the bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. And the bankruptcy uh, was not closed uh, at the time uh, that this uh, uh, claim was asserted in the adversary proceeding. Essentially what he was doing was... And was, was it... Uh, was, uh, was it a bankruptcy judge uh, ruled on it? Yes, the bankruptcy judge ruled on it and determined that the uh, uh, exemption should be invalidated to the extent of $2,300. He did not agree with the trustee's uh, position to, uh, to invalidate the whole $110,000 of the settlement. He said, I'm going to exercise discretion. I'm only going to set aside the exemption to the extent of $23,000 and not the whole settlement. What if it had been closed, Mr. Dyke? What if the, uh, what if the bankruptcy proceeding had been closed? You'd be making the same argument anyway, wouldn't you? Well, I, I think... I mean, I don't see that this provision... Does, does this provision say as long as uh, 105A, does that apply only when the proceeding is still open? Well, I would think it would only apply while the proceeding was still open. I, if you, why, if you, why is that? Well, if you look at the, at the bankruptcy proceeding as being parallel to, to ordinary civil proceedings in the federal courts, the, the filing of the petition is like a complaint, the objection to the exemption is like the answer, and then the closing of the case is like final judgment in the case. So if, if after the closing of the case there were a desire to, to reopen the judgment in a sense, one would have to proceed under the, the bankruptcy rule, it's equivalent to Rule 60B of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, and uh, that rule is Bankruptcy Rule 9024. But, uh, uh, and, and there's another rule, uh, uh, 5010, which provides for the reopening of closed cases. But in other words, you would have to take this additional step of trying to reopen the case before you could challenge the exemption. One might look at the effort to... to uh, uh, challenge the exemption before the closure of the case as similar to an effort to set aside a default mm-hmm. within the federal rules context relying on Rule 55. Well, I, I, it makes a big difference to me how, how I view this case if I think, uh, well, it's only going to apply where you have a trustee who didn't make a technical objection, but he did he did write to the lawyers and he did uh, know there was a problem there and kept the case open uh, in, in order to be able to use 105A. And if he hadn't done that, uh, bygones is bygones. Once the, there's the discharge and the case is closed, it's all over with. But, but I'm not sure that that's, that that's what would happen. You, you say the case could be reopened whenever somebody combs through the whole thing and finds out there was a mistake in the... Uh, well, I, I wasn't suggesting that the case could be opened without a very substantial showing. I mean, it's like the reopening of a judgment under Rule 60B, that there would be, have to be a a significant showing, and uh, uh, I'm, I'm well, also... Like bad faith? <laughs> significant... Like bad faith? Wouldn't that be a significant showing? Well, I think under Rule 60B, you could, uh, after uh, uh, the one-year period after the judgment, you could only reopen the judgment for a showing of fraud, and mere bad faith wouldn't be sufficient. Now, it's true that under the bankruptcy rule and the bankruptcy code, 
they, they, they don't have the same strict time limits of, of Rule 60B, but we would agree, and I think mm-hmm. that the, the interpretation of the rules and the cases would support that, that this would have to be within a reasonable time. Ar- arguably, you would also have to make a showing of uh, cause for the uh, trustees not uh, making the objection sooner if it was apparent on its face. Yes, I, which, I, which you don't think is necessary in order to recover here, right? Well, I think that the, uh, the showing of good cause, similar to what appears in Rule 55, the default provision of the federal rules, would be an appropriate gloss on this. Mm. And if you uh, look back to the equity practice before uh, the adoption of Rule 55, which would govern both the bankruptcy courts and, uh, and the federal courts, that, that uh, I think there would be, need to be some showing of good cause necessary for that kind of reopening. Well, after all, the rule just says a trustee or creditor may file within 30 days. And do you concede that they, that, that means that after 30 days, they're, under the rule, they're just foreclosed, unless you can rely on 105? Unless you can re- rely on 105 or, or equity practice to reopen it. I mean, it's, it's just like 8D of the Federal Rules of, of Civil Procedure, which says if you don't uh, controvert an allegation, it's taken as admitted. If you don't controvert the exemption, it's taken as admitted after 30 days. But our suggestion is that that does not restrict the power of the bankruptcy court to come in after the 30-day period and to reopen where there's a showing of good cause and bad faith. Well, wh- but, again, wh- why, don't we, why won't, don't we impose a, a, a cause requirement there and not just a cause requirement in order to reopen? That is to say, in addition to the fact that there be no legal uh, basis for the uh, claimed exemption, why don't we impose also a requirement that there be some plausible reason why the trustee did not object, as he should have? We, we agree that there should that, that would be an appropriate gloss. So, even, even when no reopening is necessary? Yeah, even when no reopening is necessary. That it what's, would, what's the good reason here? The, the, well, the, we would, uh, I think one could look at the parallel in Rule 55 of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, which has a good cause requirement in it to set aside a default uh, before the entry of judgment. And the good cause requirement under Rule 55 is interpreted as uh, being essentially a three-part test, that there be a meritorious defense, no prejudice to the other party, and and no bad faith by the party seeking to reopen the judgment. And uh, so we would suggest that that might be uh, the the way that good cause would be defined, and if that were defined in that way, we would think that the trustee in this case would easily satisfy it. Do we really want to import that much of the rather uh, complicated rules of federal civil rules of civil procedure into bankruptcy proceedings? Well, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, I don't think we're suggesting that we import. Uh, the federal rules of civil procedure into the bankruptcy proceedings. I think what I'm suggesting is that there are two bases here for reading uh, 522L as not being an absolute bar. Uh, One is the specific language of Section 105A, which allows the courts to dispense, expressly allows the courts to dispense uh, with the time limits where there's an abusive process, and that in turn is based on the historic equity powers of the bankruptcy courts to reopen uh, while the case is still pending uh, 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 based on, on, a, on a showing of good cause. So, uh, but, uh, but you're also saying we should carry over at least concepts from the, the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure. And it seems to me if we carry over two or three in this case, the next case we're going to be asked to carry over some more, and pretty soon we won't know what, what concepts from the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure apply in bankruptcy and which don't. Well, it's not so. The, the, the suggestion that I'm making, Mr. Chief Justice, is not so foreign to the bankruptcy code. Section 9006 of the bankruptcy rules is a, is a very close parallel and was modeled after Rule 6 of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure. And it is Rule 9006 of the bankruptcy code that the respondents are relying on here to say that the, that the court uh, cannot extend the time for filing the objections after the 30-day time period has run. So there is an exact parallel here between... But there, there you have a bankruptcy rule that very closely tracks a federal rule of civil procedure. But it strikes me in some of your argument, your rule based on 8D and 55 and 60B, you're just drawing analogies without any real reference point in the bankruptcy code. Well, the, real, the reference point in the bankruptcy code, Mr. Chief Justice, 
would be the provisions of Section 105, which for a long time have confirmed the continuing power of the bankruptcy courts to act as courts of equity. I'm not suggesting that the specific provisions of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure be imported in here and applied to bankruptcy. I'm simply saying that the, those rules of civil procedure, to some extent, are modeled after the old equity practice and that uh, quite apart from the second sec uh, sentence of Section 105A, the bankruptcy courts retain these inherent equitable powers to re-examine actions that were taken in the course of proceedings. So the, the negligence of the trustees should really never be a bar where there's a, an abusive uh, process? No, I, I, I'm not suggesting that, Justice White. I think that uh, the, if, the, if the, uh, there was egregious... Well, the trustee... <clears throat> You think the trustee should have filed a claim? I mean, he should, should have filed an objection? Well, there's no question that he should have filed Why didn't he? Why didn't he? I think there were two reasons. One, he, he wasn't convinced that uh, the debtor's representations that there was a valuable claim here were correct. And second, while it doesn't appear in the record, uh, uh, my understanding is that the practice at that time in that district was the trustees uh, uh, voiced their objections by notations at the uh, meeting of creditors rather than the filing of formal objections. That wasn't consistent with the rules. But it is an explanation as to why he proceeded in this way rather than in the correct way. Well, he did disregard the rule. He did disregard the rule. There's no question about that. But he did. Not just negligently, on purpose. Well, on, uh, isn't that right? I suppose on purpose in the sense that he uh, thought that, that it was permissible to disregard it and did that. But he, but he did advise the debtor immediately after the creditor's meeting about yeah. the claim that he had. There wasn't any prejudice to the, to the uh, creditor here. Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, I'd like to reserve the remainder of my time. Very well, Mr. Dyke. Mr. Simon, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the respondents are requesting that they be allowed to retain their fees in this case. They prosecuted a cause of action for the debtor through three appellate courts in Pennsylvania. Petitioner has framed the issue in terms of whether under Section 522L of the Code, a bankruptcy court may exempt property because no one objected. Plain language of Section 522L provides, unless a party in interest objects, what's claimed as exempt is exempt. The language is not ambiguous, nor has petitioner argued that it is. But Mr. Simon, is it not true that the real objection is that he didn't make a timely objection? He did make known his objection. Um, I don't believe that is, it, it is, I don't believe that is true because the trustee commenced an action under Section 549 of the Code to recover property transferred. He did not, at, at that point, as his complaint will show, specifically call into question uh, the exemption claimed, etc. He just simply claimed that it was property of the estate. Uh, well, that's a, that's a that's a pretty good challenge to the claim of exemption. In, in a manner of speaking, it is. Well, yeah. But it well, can't be both exempt and and property of the estate. We responded that it was not property of the estate because it had been prior. Uh, had it been exempted out of this, the estate under the clear language of Section 522L. Uh, yes, but that would not be a complete answer if there were no timeliness requirement. He could say, well, I'll make my objection now. Your basic argument is the objection was made too late. That, that's certainly correct. So the real question is not on what 522L requires or means, but rather what the bankruptcy rule requires. Certainly, the bankruptcy rules flesh out the code requirement. Well, if you didn't have the bankruptcy rule, you'd have no case, because he could say, I'm now making my objection. That, that's true, but formally, he has never, to this day, objected. Well, he might do it today. 
it'd still be okay if it weren't for the bankruptcy. bankruptcy That's certainly because correct. Because the state's still open, isn't it? That's certainly correct, Your Honor. Well, he filed a suit, though, in the bankruptcy court, in the case, right in the bankruptcy case. That's correct. Well, that's a – and if he was trying to recover property, he certainly was objecting to the claim of exemption. My, my point, I guess, is that there is nothing in his complaint that – Said objection. That made him realize that it had been objected or, uh, excuse me, claimed as exempt. There is nothing in his complaint that makes him aware or makes us aware, excuse me, that he was calling into question a specific, specific exemption. Oh, well, but you, resp- you responded by saying that the property was exempt. That's, that's true, certainly. The, the, the courts that have not enforced the clear language of Section 522L and, and Rule 4003 have done so largely on the basis that it would create a scheme of exemption by declaration, so to speak. This is a policy argument, and we don't believe you reach policy arguments in a case where the language is so clear, the legislative history is May I just make one other observation on, on the rule? You're reading the word may as though it said must, aren't you? I'm reading the word may, I believe, to say a creditor may object. He does not have to object, but the time limit um, set out later in the rule uh, may object within 30 days of a meeting of creditors held pursuant to a certain rule unless further time is granted by the court within such period. And further bankruptcy rules... So you're saying that it really means must. That's a fair reading. I'm not suggesting it isn't. But you really are reading the word made as though it said must. As, as it regards the time limit, yeah. certainly. Mr. Simon, um, what do you suppose the meaning of Section 105 is? And could, could the second sentence, the new sentence added to Section 105, ever be relied upon uh, in one of these bankruptcy cases to overcome the failure to make a timely um, objection to an acclaimed exemption? I, I believe it, it can, frankly. Uh, it, the second sentence of 105 states that there is no, no provision of this title shall be construed to prevent the court from sua sponte taking action necessary appropriate to enforce orders, rules, and abuse of process. What do you think abuse of process means as applied to uh, an exemption claim? Well, certainly if there was no objective basis in fact or no arguable basis in law, it was clearly an outrageous matter. Um, If it was a perversion of the process, yes, it, it could could be read that way and, and properly read that way. However, we don't believe that factually exists in this case. Well, the court below had no, apparently made no reliance upon, did not consider the possible application of Section 105. That's certainly true. So is it still open in the court below to consider that possibility? Well, again, uh, to some extent, parties must be bound by what they raise or don't raise. Um, and this, this particular provision speaks in, in terms of court orders, rules, and abuse of process. Certainly the rules are very strict in this arena, as they are in, uh, throughout the Federal Rules of Bankruptcy Procedure. They, they generally provide for short time limits to expedite and move cases. 
And clearly... Uh, is there any express time limit for use of Section 105? And if so, what is it? Uh, no, there, there certainly is not, Your Honor. Um, it is a general... It, it is in a provision of the code that speaks to the general equity powers of the court. However, here you have a specific, if you want to term it legal, um, statutory scheme, partly set out in the, in the code, of course, and partly set out in, in the rules. I, w- I want to be clear of your position. You, you said that if the claim is has no basis in law or is outrageous or is a perversion of the process, then the 105... Uh, section would, would apply, it, it seems to me that that brings you much closer to, the, to Mr. Dyke's position than I had thought your brief indicated, or are you saying that well, 105 is not applicable any, in any event? Pardon me. Um, I believe it must be read in light of the specific rules and statutory scheme. For example, if on the 30th day of the running of the objection period, the court had allowed extension because um, on, on its own motion or ruling uh, had allowed extension and directed the trustee to re- uh, review the claim of object- exemption. That would be perfectly proper, perfectly within the equity powers of, of uh, Well, I, I take it no one contends the court lacks the power. Do you contend that that the court lacks the power to give an extension of time if the trustee requests it? No, certainly under Rule 4003, if, uh, if it's requested within the period and granted within the period. Well, what is your position if the claim the exemption has no basis in law, which was your phrase? Uh, it, does, does a failure to file an objection within 30 days uh, prevent the trustee from later claiming that that was an, 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 imp- an improper uh, listing on the exemption sheet? Yes, certainly there, uh, there must be a bright line. Uh, I'm not... So that it doesn't make any difference that there was no basis in law. I just want to know what your position Eventually is. it must not. Eventually there must be a bright line. I'm, I'm trying not to be over-restrictive of the reading of the equitable system. Well, bright lines are usually over-restrictive of uh, cases where fairness might call for a different result, aren't they? Certainly. I, I guess I'm suggesting that 105 must be read in relation or construed with the, the code section and the rule sections, and, and they are so strict and so clear, as you will, if you will, uh, that the equitable provisions must again be construed strictly. But time limits are always strict. I mean, a time limit is a time limit. And, and, uh, uh, you know, 105 applies to, uh, 105A applies to, to provisions providing for the raising of an issue by a party. Um, I, I, in, you, you, you acknowledge, however, that, that abusive process is, is not process in the common law sense. That abusive process means abuse of the, embraces uh, abuse of the judicial process. Certainly. Okay. In this case, however, the only action taken by the court was approximately three and a half years after the objection to exemption period had run, that is, if you will, will a 40 times extension of the objection to exemption period. At some point, there must be finality in these matters. Did you know, uh, I take it the trustee did notify some people that uh, about his position with respect to the to the uh, to the estate's interest in the possible recovery. That's certainly correct, Your Honor. And did the debtor know that? Um, my client, Freeland and Kranz, knew that uh, by letter directed to them. Um, 
and that was an inquiry letter which they answered. Uh, well, it was no surprise that the trustee uh, made a claim three and a half years later. Well, in, indeed, it, whether it should or should not have been a surprise, it, it was. Uh, Although it was wholly consistent with his letter three and a half years before. To, to, to some extent, he claimed in the letter that the net proceeds of, of, of the cause of action were property of the estate. That was before the exemption to uh, objection period had, had run. There was really no way to knowing whether he, after further inquiry, thought it was unlikely there would be a recovery and did not choose to exempt or object to the exemption, or he just failed to take action for some other cause. Mr. Simon, your finality uh, requirement would simply be satisfied by the finality of the closing of the case, wouldn't it? It, it, it could be, certainly. Why wouldn't that be enough? Um, well, simply stated, I guess, because there's specific code and rule language that, that calls for an earlier deadline. And well, doesn't that, if, I mean, if that's your criterion, you're reading 105 pretty much out of the statute, aren't you? I'm, I am reading 105 to be severely limited because it, it can't, contains the language necessary or appropriate to enforce orders, rules, or prevent abuse of process. There were no prior orders here. And no, but you're, you're not depending on orders. You're depending on process, and you have conceded that process can be an abuse of the judicial process, not process referring to some document issued. And the judicial process is an ongoing one, which only concludes uh, with, the, uh, with the closing of the case. Well, uh, if I stated that or, or implied that, uh, I, it's broader than I intended. Well, I, I thought, I guess we'd better get clear on that, because I thought that Justice Scalia specifically asked you that question to clarify that point. So I think we do not understand what you mean by abusive process. When I, when I say process, the, the code and the rules, the, the statutory scheme is the process. Well, if the statutory scheme is the process, then I suppose the process continues until the case is closed. But I, uh, I'm not sure if I understand the inquiry of the court, but... Well, the, the inquiry started with, with your claim that in administering 105, there is, a, there is an interest in finality which must be served in construing it as to when a 105 sua sponte objection may be raised. And I said, isn't that interest served sufficiently by saying it's got to be raised before the case is closed? Uh, and since you concede that process means judicial process, i.e. the whole statutory scheme, uh, it would seem consistent with your view of process to say that a 105 sua sponte objection could be raised by the court or inquiry could be made by the court at any time until the case is closed. Well, Certainly, the case closing could be could be uh, could be a deadline, but but I guess I'm saying that there is a specific deadline in this statutory scheme, and there is no real uh, reason for going outside of that scheme, except in very extreme and unusual cases uh, where there are. Uh, where and and you don't have that concern not only specifically in this case but but the uh, the, the court did not really take any suspente action ex except years into the future on this case after after the exemption period ha had run. Basically, your 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 defense here is that. Uh this is not an extreme case. Isn't that right? I mean, Certainly. Uh, why, why isn't it an extreme case? Uh, do you say that there was a valid legal basis for exemption of the entire, the entire claim? Absolutely, because under the exemption scheme, the debtor had three arguable bases 
for exemptions. Under 522D5, the so-called wildcard exemption allows $4,150 in, in any property. Also, future earnings, and arguably, though, though perhaps weak, a claim for, uh, for loss of pension. It's unquestionable that, that, uh, that her attorneys claimed loss of pension rights, whether uh, ultimately they were, there was an entitled but would, would that have covered the entire claim? I mean, you're talking about it. Well, it was worth $110,000. You know, the, the $6,000 isn't going to cover much of that. We don't believe that that was indeed on the appropriate date, the date of the petition filing, that that lawsuit was worth 110000 Well, the claim, I, I, that's what had, well, I, I thought that the letter from, uh, from your firm uh, to the trustee said that that uh, that had, had been what the award had been. The, what, there, there was a letter... Did I make this up? I don't think I made it. No, it's, no certainly. There was a letter from an associate mm-hmm. in a firm of Freeland and Kranz that responded to the trustee's inquiry, and that letter certainly did state that there was no as- way of ascertaining the value of the claim to Ms. Davis other than calculating back pay and interest, and he had calculated that uh, at $110,000. That occurred after the petition date, and it was based on the assumption that there was final liability, uh, which turned out at that time, which turned out to be incorrect, at least at that time. But but more importantly, at that time, there had not been damages testimony that the um, the Pittsburgh Human Relations Commission had, had entered an order that said you're entitled to wage loss for a period from 1976 until the time that the defendant no longer employed a certain category of employee in Pittsburgh. And if you make that calculation, as we have done in our brief, that amounts to roughly nine or ten thousand dollars in damages. So at that point in time, uh, it, it, the burden was on the debtor through her attorneys to, re- in effect, reverse that commission order. Now they went f- later went forward to. Uh, towards a trial on damages, and, and the matter was, was, of course, eventually settled. But at that point in time, at the critical point in time, the filing of the bankruptcy petition, liability was not finally determined. Yes, the, the case had a seesaw history, and the last court that it had ruled was in the debtor's favor. But more importantly, the, the claim that it was worth 110000 uh, in my client's word, was a, at that time, was a flight of fancy. Uh, there was a specific um, commission order in place, and those damages were severely limited, and, uh, I, and the uh, testimony at trial was, was similar, that the, the only evidence presented was the claim was not as as valuable at that time. Mr. Simon, uh, did uh, your opponent rely in the Court of Appeals on uh, bankruptcy, uh, on Section 105A? No, no, Your Honor. That was not raised. Not raised at all? Mr. Simon, as I understand it, you're saying, number one, the amount of the claim uh, was low at the relevant period, i.e., maybe nine or $10,000. I think you're also saying that the value of that claim as an asset was not even the amount of the claim itself because it was subject to contingencies. That, that's certainly correct. Yeah. Okay. If, if there are no further inquiries from the court, I would ask to be excused. Very well, Mr. Simon.
Mr. Dyke, do you have rebuttal? You have three minutes remaining. Let me. Do you uh, do you agree that the your part your client did not raise the issue of Section 105 in the Court of Appeals? That is correct, Mr. Chief Justice. The issue in the Court of Appeals, however, was the whether Section 522 was a bar. And we're, uh, that's the same issue in this court as in the lower courts, and we're suggesting that in interpreting Section 522 that the court should look to Section 105. Which but you didn't suggest that to the Court of Appeals. That's correct. Nor in your petition for certiorari. That's correct. It was a, it, well, the petition for certiorari uh, noted the conflict in the circuits and... and well, I know, but you, you didn't even cite 105. That's correct. We did not. And, and the first time it appeared here was in the brief. In the opening brief. That's correct. Uh, just to respond to uh, one point, the, the bankruptcy court, and this appears at page 40A of the appendix to the petition, the bankruptcy court made a specific finding that uh, the court finds that the value of the cause of action on October 24, 1984, and that's the date of the filing of the bankruptcy petition, was $110,000. Specific finding. And the letter from uh, the respondent's own uh, lawyer uh, characterized it at that time as a as a uh, claim for back pay and interest. There's no exemption under the code for back pay and interest except to the extent of the catch-all exemption, which everyone agrees in this case would only allow an exemption of $3,950. Uh, Mr. Dyke, if, if a trustee is, is puzzled as to whether the exemption is applied, does he, is there a formulation where he can have some sort of a running objection uh, just to leave the time open, or is his only option to ask for a hearing? The, he, he could uh, uh, ask for an extension of time under Rule 4003. Uh, and if the extension of time is granted uh, before the expiration of the period, the court can act on the extension of time. What we're suggesting is that uh, there is an additional power in Section 105 and in the prior equity practice which allows the court to uh, uh, remedy a default of this kind. I just uh, note for the court's benefit that there is a case that we didn't uh, cite in our brief. I call uh, opposing counsel's attention to its Wayne Gas Company, 300 U.S. 131, which does discuss uh, the equitable powers of the bankruptcy court to do this sort of thing. You did raise uh, in your petition subsumes uh, disposition. Uh, Justice, this is just another argument for saying 522 isn't bar. That's correct, Justice White. It, it seems to us that uh, relying on Section 105 in this context, which uses uh, the word construed. But I suppose you would, even if we, even if we get to 105, I would suppose you, that it wouldn't surprise you if we said we're not going to fool with 105. Uh, I mean, we're not going to decide the case based on that. We're going to send it back. Well, I, I, it wouldn't surprise me, Justice White, if uh, the case were ultimately sent back for a decision to by the bank. To see what effect 105 had. Well, to, to, to have him exercise his discretion under Section 105, yes. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Dyke. The case is submitted.